0: I was tempted to begin this episode by bellowing, wake up at the top of my lungs, but I've decided not to. I hope that the truth that is spoken in the sermon we consider today will do something of the same without me affecting a bellow. The Church Aroused is the title of this week's featured sermon and it was preached by Spurgeon on the 7th of October 1866 on a Sunday evening at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. This week, as we work our way through Spurgeon's sermons, we're reading 710 to 716. It's that last sermon, 716, that is this week's featured sermon. To find out more, please find us on Twitter at... uh, reading Spurgeon that's at reading Spurgeon or you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and you can find there both a weekly newsletter for which you can sign up where you'll get the featured sermon as a pdf or you'll get the um, the the weekly readings as a, as an email and indeed you'll find some other podcast material uh, that you might appreciate and enjoy from a a variety of different voices. This week, then, uh, the church aroused. And the text on this occasion is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14. Wherefore, he says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, he, uh, our, our preacher Spurgeon, the, the Victorian uh, pastor and evangelist, says that there are some who think it would be altogether unscriptural and unsound to address these words to those who have no spiritual life, and we're not of their number. If we see a man ever so deadly asleep, we believe we are commissioned by God to preach the gospel to him and to say, awake thou that sleepest. And though more and more persuaded of the want of moral sensibility in man and the desperate character of his depravity, we are not amongst those who fear to preach to dead sinners, but dare to say even to the dead, thus says the Lord, you dry bones hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, you dry bones live. And so his introduction is uh, contrary to the hyper-Calvinism, which was characteristic of many preachers in his day, that he could have preached this to those who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins with confidence that by the gospel God would bring them to life. But he says, that's not what I'm aiming at today. Whatever objection you might have to addressing the text of the converted, there would be far more difficulty in addressing it to the unconverted, and I think there ought to be no hesitation in directing it to either. What he's going to do is not then so much to preach to the unconverted and call them in Christ's name to wake from absolute spiritual death, but rather to use the text to speak to Christians, to church members, to professing believers. And the first thing he wants to do is to take the state of mind into which many Christians can get, then to consider what Christ has to say to them about this state, that is, awake and arise from the dead, and then thirdly, the gracious promise with which we are encouraged to make that effort. Well then, if we're Christians, let's take these things to heart. First of all, notice the state of mind into which a Christian may sometimes get. He may be asleep And, he says, in a modified sense, even dead. Now, what we have here is a somewhat unbalanced sermon. I don't mean it's doctrinally unbalanced. I mean in its organisation, and perhaps Spurgeon could see this on paper in front of him. It seems perhaps though he couldn't because of a comment he makes later on. But um, in the development of the sermon, in the preaching of the sermon, this first point ends up having a, a real great weight in terms of the balance of the whole placed upon it. So then, this state of mind into which a Christian may sometimes get, first of all, the insidious character of it. The insidious character of it. And it, something that is insidious is uh, it's like a creeping poison, a, a gradual, harmful impact. So this sleeping Christianity is insidious. It has this... This creeping, debilitating effect, he says, a Christian may be asleep, and not know it. In fact, if he did know it, it wouldn't—he would not be asleep. Often and often, says Spurgeon, when young people come to me and say, "Oh, sir, I'm afraid I'm a hypocrite," my answer generally is that I'm not afraid of it. For when you're afraid of such a sin as that, it is not at all likely that you are guilty of it. Some of you then tonight may be in a very sleepy state. But for this very reason, you will not think so. So the person who's concerned about sleepiness isn't as likely to be asleep. And then a man who is asleep may be kept in a very good countenance by his neighbours. His fellow Christians may not be likely to accuse him of it, for they're probably in the same state. So he's basically saying you're all, you're all, as it were, under the covers together, just warming one another up and keeping one another still. And if someone rolls over, you all roll over together and no one falls out and no one ever wakes up. And then a person who is asleep may have taken care before he went to sleep to prevent anyone coming in to wake him up. There's a way of bolting the door of your heart against anybody. If you get into certain views of doctrine, you can very easily go to sleep and your doctrines will stand as sentinels at the doors to go- prevent anyone from awakening you. So he says there are uh, antinomian views and hyper-Calvinistic views that just dull your spiritual senses and lull you to sleep. And this sleepiness in Christians is exceedingly dangerous too because you can do a great deal while asleep that might make you look as if you were quite awake. There's a sleep talking and sleep walking and sleep singing and sleep praying and sleep teaching. You can do so many things without any real spiritual liveliness. So some people talk in their sleep and many professors, and again he means they professing Christians, will talk just as if they were the most active, the most earnest, the most gracious, the most warm-hearted people anywhere. They're not They're asleep, but they love to talk as if they were awake. Many a man has sung a hymn in this house asleep too. His heart's never been awakened to the true melody of praise. He's got through the hymn somehow, his lips have made a sound, but his heart's never singing at all. He himself is awake enough to catch the notes, but his heart is not awake enough to drink into the true spirit of thanksgiving. There are some who can dally with the world and yet keep up an outwardly consistent character. Oh, the manner in which some Christians will go as near to the fire of sin as well may be, and be scorched by it, and yet not burned. And then there's uh, somebody who dreams deliciously, but there's no activity. He could always manage a Sunday school or, or build a Christian interest better than anybody else, but no Sunday school or Christian interest, that means uh, no a Christian endeavour, ever does spring up under his hand because the man's whole activity shows itself in inventions which are never executed and in plans which are never carried out i knew a, a man once uh who used to tell me yo you just you just wait you give me a chance and you'll see what i can do and i used to give him a chance and i'd wait and see and nothing ever happened he used to uh, boast of what would be accomplished if ever really put his hand to the plow but he never really put his hand to the plough. Spurgeon's got that kind of man in mind. The worst of it, he says, is that when these sleeping people get into a nice comfortable position in the Christian church, they can fill it very well, and they're the last people in the world to get out, because sleepy as they are, they know when the bed is soft and warm. And oh, when sleeping ministers get into the pulpit, what a curse they are to us! And when sleepy church officers once get into their places, there's no moving them. But here they are and they seem to fill the place quite well. While all the while it is though the sentinel's box were filled with a slumbering man and consequently the army is not guarded and an attack may be made upon a sudden. So he says, this is the the insidious, the, the creeping danger of this Christian sleepiness and this spiritual dullness. But then he goes on. What what is the evil itself? He says, I don't know that I can really describe it. But perhaps you have felt it, and certainly you've seen it. What is this sleepiness, this dullness? Well, it's an unconsciousness of one's own state and a carelessness of such a kind as not to want to be conscious of it. The man takes everything for granted in religion. This is the. I can imagine this sermon being obnoxious to many professing Christians, Uh, even in Spurgeon's day preaching this. it's, It's describing too many of us too closely. Whether he is a Christian or not doesn't arouse in him any question. He believes he is, he thinks he is, that's enough for him. He doesn't want to come to close dealings. He doesn't like the preacher who makes him try the foundations. He would rather not have such unpleasant points put to him. And there are lots of people who sit in lots of chairs and pews and whatever else it may be, who when the preacher begins to press home, the reality of a, of, a, of a root of faith and a fruit of work is just not very interested in hearing these things. They resent them, they resist them, they evade them. If little concerns, it little concerns some Christians, he says, what becomes of St. Giles or Bethnal Green or Golden Lane. What does he mean by this? Well, it's not just that you're not bothered about yourself. You're not bothered about anybody else either. That's the concern. The These are regions of London. These are uh, neighbourhoods of the city. It is enough for some Christians if they are comfortable, if they can attend a respectable place of worship and go with others to heaven. They are indifferent about everything else. And whether there shall be an increase of darkness or of light in England does not seem to concern some Christians, nor even some ministers. Spurgeon's saying here this is the the evil of this spiritual stupor this drowsiness that can afflict us no doubt we'd be very pleased if people were converted but waking ourselves up to the value of souls and actually engaging in earnest effort and humble prayer too much asleep for that and insensible to the state of others and I fear that too many of us are preaching and hearing in such a condition. And they seem, too, to be perfectly immovable by all appeals. Many a preacher will know this, to stand up and preach your heart out, to, to preach y- your soul. A- and people pretty much give you a hmm, nice word, vicar, on the way out. And perhaps they'll tell you that these are good things or, or needful things and we need to hear it. Or, or they might say, ah, oh, well, you want to take this into account as well. Or, or they make some comment about whatever it may be. The best argument, says Spurgeon, is lost on a sleeping man. You might convince him if he were awake, but what can you do with him while he still slumbers? And a preacher can make the most earnest appeals and bring the closest reasoning to bear, and it seems to make no difference. If that's the case with my soul, it means I am asleep. And then he says further that this slumbering spirit spreads itself over everything else. A sleeping Christian doesn't enjoy the word. If he reads it, the text seems meaningless. If he hears it, he thinks the preacher doesn't preach as he used to do. If he goes to sing with others, he throws no heart into it. If he joins in the prayer meeting, he goes in and out, but he does not wrestle with the angel of mercy. As to his own closet, he means his private devotion. It is full of cobwebs. As to his own heart, he's not had an inspection of it for many a day because he's got into a slumbering state. How often one can detect churches slumbering by the way in which they drawl out the hymns and their protracted or or lengthened prayers, which, after all, are no prayers at all. There's a heartlessness in the manner in which everything is gone about. this, This makes me weep because I think it's too close to the bone. And then he says, these brothers get unhappy and so they get to be quarrelsome. Uh, their Christianity is in such a state that they're so nearly dead that they're always looking after evidences. We're low and miserable because we're sleepy, and then the the Christian Church comes to be a positive nuisance. We, we just get in the way. We're an impediment rather than an assistance to anyone. And so says Spurgeon. Let's think of that word eternity. How is it that we don't feel its power more? He says, I know what it's like, because I've been asleep. But if I think of this, it changes everything. Think of the judgment. Think of the terrors of that tremendous day when Christ shall appear upon the great white throne. Remember the wrath of God. Remember the pit which he has dug. Think of the glory of Christ, the robes of whiteness, the tearless eyes of the blood washed. Can we think of these things and yet be cold? callous and indifferent shall we always live at this poor dying rate so this is the this is the great concern then that that Spurgeon has that that we're in this dull and and sleepy and 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 oh, spiritually almost dead you know he keeps saying it's it's deadness of a kind it's not absolute deadness but it it might as well be sometimes for all the value all of the use that we are and then he says that two or three words upon what makes this evil of Christians being asleep a great deal worse is first of all this, that they're Christ's servants and they ought not to be asleep. If our Christ is laboring, why are we so, so dull? Christ is up there interceding. We're down here sleeping the most of us. Christ is up there showing his wounds, pleading before the Father's throne that he would visit the sons of men and give him to see of the travail of his soul. And here we are, not watching against his enemies, not helping him by our prayers, but busy here and there wasting precious time while immortal souls are being lost. We're sleeping like men in the midst of harvest when the grain is waiting for the sickle. Our sickles are laid by, and we stretch ourselves beneath the shadow of some spreading tree and sleep. Though black clouds are gathering, and the rain which will spoil the corn is certainly coming on, we, hired to do the day's work, still sleep on. It is not so with you all, but it is so with many of us. It's a fearful thing, isn't it, that with all our committees and our conferences and our engagements and our ministries and whatever else it may be and perhaps even our podcasts and so forth. How many of us are actually laboring for Jesus Christ rather than just filling our time and squandering our energies on religious feeling activities. It's bad for us to sleep too because it's quite certain that the enemy is awake Uh, In the the last podcast, you might remember, Spurgeon had quoted Hugh Latimer. I wonder if he'd been reading Latimer when he was uh, working through this particular season. But he, he, he makes the same point. The devil doesn't sleep. The devil's busier than any of us. If we could send the devil to sleep, we might take a nap ourselves, but we never can, and therefore we ought to be awake. Christian man, while you are sleeping, remember time is running on. If you could stop the hands of time, you might afford yourselves a little leisure. If you could, as we say, take time by the forelock, you might pause a while. But you must not rest, for the tremendous wheels of the chariot of time are driven at such a fearful rate that the axles thereof are red hot with speed, and there is no pause in that tremendous rush. I I wonder, actually, if in this sermon... Perhaps Spurgeon, at some point in in those weeks uh, in which he's preaching these kinds of things, has sensed in himself a measure of spiritual dullness, and having taken himself in hand, having examined his own soul, having stirred himself, he's he's asking: Isn't now the time to, uh, to 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 rouse not just myself, but but for us all to be lifted up? We're so ready to go like snails in the course of good, while swifter than the row or the heart, men fly in the road of evil. Shall it be always so? The Christian pastor may forget the villager, the parish priest will not. The Christian minister may not proclaim the gospel, but the the monks will make no uncertain sound. Christian women may forget to visit the sick, but there'll be so-called sisters of mercy who'll be there. Now Spurgeon's thinking here primarily of uh, Roman Catholic influence, but... If we won't speak, if we won't care, if we won't invest, there'll be many who do not know the gospel who'll be glad to supplant us and bring poison with them. You may turn aside, Christian, then, if you please, from your position in the ranks of Christ, but you will not find the servants of Satan so unfaithful. Oh, that such restlessness might come upon us, that we might have an insatiable hungering to do good, and an awful passion to bless our fellow men, that we might yearn and sigh because others will not repent and will not turn unto God. The Lord send us such an awakening. If not, our sin of sleeping is terrible indeed. You feel the force of of what he's saying, and it's it's good and it's right and it's proper that we should feel that force, that we should uh, feel the weight of these particular things. And what is it then, he asks, that sends us to sleep. You see how he's developing this imagery. He's got this uh, metaphor here in his mind and he's pressing it home and he's, he's pressing it in and he's developing it and he's uh, insisting upon it. So he says, for some it's having too much business. But he says, I don't believe that. That's just an excuse. I don't find London Christians more asleep than country Christians. He says that there's, there's too many people in too many places. Your, your your pulses should be quickened by having so much to do. When you've got something on the go, I suppose it's a, a re- reflection of the, the the proverb that if you want something done, give it to a busy man. Well, he says there there are other problems. You're inclined to slumber from the evil of your nature. Master, he cries, deliver us from the guilt and then from the power of sin. All the while we're thus asleep about divine things, we're wide awake like the rest of the world about other things. I've sometimes remarked, he goes on, the way in which men will speak out in the shop most distinctly and mumble in the prayer meeting. I've sometimes thought I've seen persons who at the sound of a shilling seem to open their ears and start up, be just as much though the opposite way when it comes to doing things for Christ. First and foremost for this world, last for the world to come, toiling like the ants to gain this world's dross, but idle as a butterfly in regard to divine things. And this so sad because it proves it's not the want of power to be active, but want of will. I often say that people in, in the congregations that I know and the, the congregation I serve, people can do everything that they really want to do. They've got energy for everything that's important to them. And my problem is that too often the things of the kingdom are not important enough to me. So the evil of my nature tends to sleepiness. So does the chloroform of bad doctrine, uh, the the, the sleeping drug of bad doctrine. This, says Spurgeon, has sent half our Baptist churches to sleep. They've been taught that man is not responsible to God. They have been taught clear fate and nothing better and consequently have gone to sleep. That's hyper-Calvinism again. Then the sultry sun of prosperity sends many to sleep, just as you and I perhaps doze on a warm summer's afternoon. So when God seems to be favourable to us in providence, our soul begins to sleep. Fullness of bread is a strong temptation to a Christian. And then there's the intoxication of pride. Get proud of your spiritual condition, that will soon send you to sleep. And I know a lot of uh, Reformed congregations are very pleased with themselves that they are what they are, and the result is dullness. You cannot be too long in the soporific, the the, the sleep-inducing air of this particular period of time without feeling that in spiritual things you grow lax, for it is a lax age, lax in doctrine, lax in principle, lax in morals, lax in everything and only God can come in and help the pilgrim to keep awake in this enchanted ground. Well, that's the bulk of the sermon, this penetrating and painful expose of the spiritual sleepiness of too many Christians. It's it's dangerous character, The, the evil in itself, and then the things that send us to sleep. Now, says Spurgeon, what does Christ say to his sleeping people? He says, Awake, you who sleep, and arise from the dead. Now, this at this point, Spurgeon takes a more gentle tone. I think it's good, again, if we're preachers, or indeed if we're hearing preaching, to remember that there can be these shifts of tone in the course even of a particular sermon. They don't always have to be, but here Spurgeon moves from this stirring this penetrating, this uh, difficult expose of our spiritual sleepiness to, to now give us perhaps a measure of particular encouragement in the face of it, which is to remember first of all that Jesus speaks this in love. Now you say, how can that kind of speech be in love? How can this bellow to awake from slumber be loving? Well, says Spurgeon, Have you ever known Christ do or say anything that was not in love? If Christ calls you to awake out of sleep, if Christ stirs you from your slumbers, it must be the kindest thing he could possibly say to you. Sometimes a mother's love lulls her child to sleep, but if there's a house on fire, the mother's love would take another expression and startle it from its slumbers. So Christ's love is what makes him say to you, Awake! 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 It's why he stirs you. Then it's his wisdom as well as his love. He knows you're losing much by sleeping. There are many things that are taking place and he he doesn't want you to miss out. He doesn't want you to be a loser, but would have you be rich and increased in spiritual goods. And it's a voice too, says Spurgeon, which you ought to own. That is, you ought to pay attention to it, for it's backed up by the authority of the person from whom it comes. It's none other than Christ himself, your Lord and Saviour, who says, Awake, and everything in him and in your relationship to him bids you pay attention. Oh, the depths of our obligation. Oh, how high should be the heights of our gratitude, since Christ has done so much for us. If he says, Awake, oh, Master, we would not only awake, but we would crave thy pardon a thousand times that ever we should have fallen into this sinful sleep. And then again, it's a voice which has been very often repeated. Christ has been saying, awake, awake to some of us many hundreds of times through our our sicknesses, through our troubles in business, through our sorrows in life, through our awakenings in the house of prayer, through our prayer meetings, through the sermons. Why are we not waking up when all around us Christ is calling to us to stir ourselves? And then he says, remember, this is a personal cry, the singular pronoun, awake, you who sleep, each one of you. Shall I pick you out one by one, says the preacher? Too many for that. But I might say, my dear, venerable, grey-headed friend, if there's any tendency in you to slumber, Jesus says, wake up. And you, maiden, who've given your heart to your Saviour in your young days, he says to you, wake, who sleep, And you, young man with many talents, he says to you, not laying things out for Christ as you should, awake, you who sleep. And to the most slumbering of us, he seems to say it most loudly and most lovingly. It's a very personal warning. And it's in the present tense. It's a pressing demand. Wake up now. Not roll over and wake up later. Not wake up one day. It's not what you'll do in a few years, but now, now, now. It's there in spirit in the, te- in the in this text, says Spurgeon. Don't wake up in an hour's time. I want you to wake up now. And the last point then is, and again he's very brief, that there's a promise with which Christ encourages us to awake. Christ shall give you light. What does that mean? Sometimes instruction. And he says, get the heart right and you'll get right upon many difficult points. The most important thing, though, not merely the light of direction, guidance and knowledge, but, he thinks, chiefly the light of joy. Oh, there are some of you who are generally in the dark. You do not know whether you are Christians or not half of your time. You're always spelling out your evidences, working out whether or not you're truly converted and so on. You're like a man almost drowned, alive, but how do they know it? Why, you need a glass up to your mouth, and if there's a little steam, they say, yes, he breathes. And he says, if only some of us would wake up from our sleepy state and begin to labour for God and to love souls, you would get such joy flooding your spirits as you never knew before. And one of the great griefs of pastors today, as I understand it, is that many Christians, when they hear this kind of preaching, when they have this kind of urging, when a pastor speaks to them publicly and privately, rather than waking up and entering into this joy uh, as Christ uh, blesses us and stirs us, they resent all the more the call to action and they retreat all the further into their nice warm beds and under their nice warm covers. And so says Spurgeon this, Listen to this. I have often prayed to God that I might not be the pastor of an army of invalids. I would be glad enough to comfort them and do my best to make this a hospital for them, but I want to be the captain of an army of soldiers and to turn this place into a barracks for them. I want you to go out every day from Monday till Saturday and on the Sabbath too, fighting for Christ. Contending for the faith, seeking to gather in outcasts, looking after the poor and needy, helping the weak and feeble, comforting the disconsolate, and putting out all your strength in your Master's cause. I can only add my Amen to that, and I know that there'd be countless other preachers who would do the same. So may God deliver us from having this place to be a huge cemetery, and make us to be a great house a great city from which shall go forth the hosts and armies of the Lord to do battle for him. May God send his Holy Spirit to abide among us in all his plenitude, in all his fullness, and he shall have the glory. And then with a word to the unconverted, he closes. Well, it's not fun, is it, to hear a sermon like that, but how needful it might be. I trust that if it's needful for you, that you've heard it and you've heard it well. And I trust that you'll join us again next time on this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon to, to listen again and I hope to, to learn more from Spurgeon of what it means to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Next week we're reading Sermon 717 to 723 and it's 717 which is our featured text, our featured sermon pray for Jesus. Thank you again for listening. Let's take these things away. Let's take them to our hearts and let us awake if we're sleeping because we have heard the voice of Christ calling us out of our slumbers and to our duties.